0: And that has built certain theologies that start to crumble when we look at the scripture as a whole. And so in a few minutes as we read it, I want you to try and act like you've never read it before and that when we talk about um, the miraculous working of the spirit in this moment, that we don't put it in, in reference to the church tradition that maybe you have grown up in, but that we just read it and try and understand what is happening here and what is God trying to teach us with this. But let me just give you a real, real quick catch-up of chapter one. We looked at the book of Acts as kind of part two of Luke's writing, so he wrote the gospel of Luke, and and then the book of Acts kind of following that. And as he stated, Luke is written, the gospel of Luke is written to show or to begin to show all the things that Jesus would do and to teach. And the book of Acts is about the continuation of that primarily through this new avenue of the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking lots about how the Holy Spirit's primary job, according to Scripture, is to bring to mind all that Jesus said and taught, to bring to remembrance everything that he did, and ultimately to bring glory to Jesus. And so we live in a time where this idea of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about, is it is poured out at Pentecost is very kind of mystical and we might have grown up in a very conservative church where we don't really like to talk about it because we don't know how to quantify it. Or we may have grown up in a very charismatic church where certain theologies have been taught that are maybe too far to the other extreme and either way, we've either abused or neglected the Holy Spirit. Well, our goal here as we study through this is that we would learn to see who the Holy Spirit is the way that he is has shown himself to us to be. And so, let's, uh, let's read together the first 13 verses. Now, we're kind of going to end on a cliffhanger a little bit because this passage is just far too long uh, to deal with. But what we're going to look at next week is is Peter's response to this, to the crowds that we're going to see. So don't worry, we're going to get there. But just for this morning's purposes, we just have verse 13 verses. It says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house that they were sitting, where they were sitting, pardon me. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every, sorry, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now, like I said, Peter's going to address the crowd and, and, and deal with some of this, this wonder and amazement and confusion. But for our purposes this morning, we want to look at what is Pentecost, what does it represent, and then we're going to look in these first four verses at some Old Testament imagery that Luke is tapping into, helping us to understand what is happening and then we're going to look at the, at the miracle itself. So what is Pentecost? Well, Penta means, okay, 550 is first, it's well, let's say it this way, it's the second of the annual harvests, uh, harvest festivals, pardon me, coming 50 days after Passover. So if you remember last year through our journey through Exodus, you learned about the instilling of Passover, the beginning of that, what it was meant. And and so I'm going to remind us of that because we're going to start to see that imagery in this text a little bit more clearly. But the Passover was the Jewish people remembering that God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And if you remember back there were various plagues that were given as, as signs to Pharaoh and Pharaoh was ordered to let his let uh, God's people go and he refused and his heart was hard and and then in the text said that God hardened his heart even further and we talked a lot about that so if that's confusing go back online and, and listen to those uh, sermons from back then but what we see is then this last plague comes and it's it's the angel of death and the people the Jewish people are told by Moses to go and to sacrifice one pure lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts of your home and that way when the angel of death would come that he would pass over your house. That that lamb, that representation of a life innocent spilled for you would pass over your sins looking forward to what? the cross. And we already sang about it that while Jesus is our lion, he's also our one true Passover lamb. And that when he died on the cross for our sins, that suddenly sin was completely dealt with and this idea of of needing to sacrifice animals for sin came to its conclusion and it was no longer there. Hebrews 7 and 9 make it abundantly clear, and they say that Jesus' blood was shed for once, for all, for the forgiveness of sins. And this Passover moment was so significant that they reordered their entire calendar for that to be the beginning of their year. But then 50 days later would be this next festival. And there's some really significant things here that, I kind of overlooked in my initial study and 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 when I when I get to a place where I, I end up coming home and I say, okay, Shayla, we have some things to talk about because I need to process. And then she asks me some questions back and I go, oh, missed that, okay. And so I did what all, uh, I feel like what we should all do is we should go and listen to a John Piper sermon. And I mean that only a little bit jokingly because he's just such a wonderful teacher with, with such good insight. And he points out here that the response that we're going to read of next week is that 3,000 people will come to faith in Jesus Christ through through this moment. And so he says this, this harvest festival is meant to mirror a harvest of souls that was about to happen. And this harvest language appears all throughout Scripture, and the first place that maybe you think of is Matthew 9, 37, 38, where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but... The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And and you can kind of think of here, there's 120, give or take, uh, followers of Jesus that are in this large upper room, and they're praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and and I can only kind of think that you're sitting there, this is it? This is all of us? We're supposed to change the world with the message of Jesus? How are we going to do that? How are we possibly going to accomplish those purposes? And, and Jesus has basically said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to work. So the Holy Spirit is given, and, and what we read, and we're going to talk about this more, but what we read is that they begin to praise God in these other languages that these other people know and hear, and they see this miraculous thing, and they're like, they're Galileans. How can they speak these languages? This doesn't make any sense. And the connection here is that we would see that Pentecost is really about a harvest of souls, that the Holy Spirit was going to work and do amazing things. However, it's easy for us to get sidetracked and to see this miracle, this, this speaking in other languages um, And again, depending on the Christian tradition that you grew up in, you can start to see this and go, okay, tongues, what what are we thinking? Maybe if you grew up in the conservative church, you you read that and you go, oh boy, Greg's going to talk about some weird stuff. Or you're on the other side and you're finally like, finally he's going to talk about this. Well, we're going to talk about it the way that the Bible talks about it. And we're really, I'm really going to leave you hanging today because we're not really going to answer a lot of questions about the gift of tongues because as you're going to see, I don't think this is actually... The gift of tongues as we read later in Scripture. We're going to talk about that when we get there in Acts later on, but we're not there yet. And and Piper notes in his sermon, he made a comment that made me pause. He was trying his hardest to show that this harvest of souls is the primary thing, but what we end up focusing on is the miracle itself of of people speaking in other languages. And so here's what he said. He says, it's a shame that today the term Pentecostal power has, for many, become associated merely with the speaking in tongues instead of with the harvest with world evangelization, which is what it's all about. That term, again, depending on where you grow up, Pentecostal power might be like, man, that's way too crazy stuff for me. Or you might be on the other side going, why don't we all do this? And it's one time, this tongues is one tiny bit of it. But the point is meant to be that the Holy Spirit comes, he indwells his believers. and, And not just these 120, but you and I as well. And the Holy Spirit is going to work in many different ways. And that's the key word that we're going to see as we look through the book of Acts and, and what my biggest argument against this being uh, the normative way in which the Holy Spirit works is the scriptures seem very clear to argue with that. This is not the normative way. It is a way. It is one way in which the Holy Spirit comes and uses certain people at certain times, but he does all kinds of other things in all kinds of other ways. And And so let's think of it in this way is we cannot make the Holy Spirit do what we want him to do. All we can be is faithful to what he has called us to do. And so that's why I think the theology of the Holy Spirit or our soteriology, that's why I think it's so important that we get it biblically, not based on various Christian traditions and what they have taught in the past. So 120 or so followers of Jesus are gathered together in this large upper room, and, and we see all kinds of imagery here that is significant of the Old Testament, specifically significant to us who have followed, or who studied through the book of Exodus last year. So first we see this rushing wind that comes out. What is that about? Now again, none of us were there, and Luke's trying to use language that We would understand, but if we don't understand the Old Testament, we miss out on this language. Where's the first time that we hear about a rushing wind in the Old Testament? Actually, Genesis. Actually, in the Garden of Eden. The problem is that English translates it not the best. It often will say that God appeared to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But the Hebrew actually says, as a rushing wind. Now, does that change the message of what Scripture teaches? No. Is it a small detail that if we read and understood Hebrew, we would see and we would make a connection with here? For sure. So I think it's important that we look at that. But a rushing wind comes in all kinds of other places, such as Psalm 77, Ezekiel 3, various parts of Isaiah, and throughout Kings. This language is is common and would, for those people who would be reading this later who were Jewish people, they would see this and they would go, okay, God's personal presence is working. Now, what exactly is that going to look like? Well, he continues on and he said that there's this imagery of divided tongues of fire that appear and then come down and rest on each of them. Again, I don't, know exactly, kind of like with Jesus' baptism when it says a dove kind of descends and you're kind of like, what is this, what would this actually have looked like? Well, we weren't there, we can't know for certain, but again, Luke is reminding us of some things. Can you think of of God's personal presence, which would be the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament listed in ways of fire, maybe in the book of Exodus as we spent, you know, a whole year going through it? The beginning of Exodus chapter 3, Moses has an encounter with God in what? The burning bush. Then at the Red Sea, we see Pharaoh's army coming after the people, and and they kind of panic, and they are afraid, and and what comes? Pillar of cloud, rushing wind, and at night, a pillar of Fire. Chapter 19, when they get to Mount Sinai, God's presence descends on it, and it literally says this, speaking of the mountain, it says God's presence descended on it in fire. And then at the end of Exodus, when we get to the tabernacle, we see that God's presence descended in the cloud, but again, Numbers gives us a little bit more detail and says it was a cloud by day and by night a pillar of fire. Now, this is not the only way in which God's personal presence appears, but it is a significant way, and I think in this moment is very significant because God's personal presence was in a place in the Old Testament. And people had to go to that place, and they had to offer sacrifice to ritually make themselves clean so that they could approach God because their sin caused problem there. And so they would go to the tabernacle or later to the temple to dwell among God, but God's plan was always that he would dwell where? In us, not among us, right? It says in John that Jesus tabernacled among us, right? We read that when we looked at Exodus, but that his purpose was to come and dwell within us. So commentator John Polhill says this. He says, the picture of what's happening here, the picture is that of one great flame representing the spirit, which separates into many tongues of flame with, with one resting on each individual. So in other words, what, you, what the Jewish people would have known with the temple and with God's presence was now not there. Where was it? It was here. And so God's personal presence would come down and indwell each one of us to accomplish. Now this shouldn't surprise us because what does it say in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, you will be my witnesses. And, and, and that's what we're going to see now, and, and actually we see already right away, is that witnessing is declaring the mighty works of God. Well, we saw that in, sh- in verse 11 right there. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That the Holy Spirit descends and would use his people. Now, notice where they are first. In the, uh, somewhere between the upper room and verse 5, Uh, the implication is that they came down and they went out to the temple grounds and there were many people there for the feast, but they were what kind of people? They were Jewish people. So where does it begin? In Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Now, we're going to see this begin and we're going to see it slowly spread out, but it's not until chapter 10 that the Gentile audience will be invited into this. But that... That is not because they weren't part of it, but that that God had a way in which he was going to accomplish his purposes. And primarily, he's going to use these 120 people to reach what we're going to see, 3,000 people which are going to reach a few more thousand people, and all of a sudden the church is going to become this huge entity, and God's power is at work in many ways so that his good deeds would be declared and that people would know who this Jesus is and that the Jewish people would recognize that this was always God's plan for salvation. But if we remember Abraham, the promise given to him was that he would be a blessing to who? To everyone. And that's when we see that beginning to move out into the Gentile people. Now again, the reason I'm kind of hanging on this a little bit here is because we can read this and we can go, here's the gift of tongues and this is kind of now the normative way in which God works and so we should do this. And in fact, there are some Christian traditions that'll go so far as to say if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you're not a follower of Jesus. But never in Scripture do we see that. In fact, we see Paul argue the opposite. And if you remember a couple of years back to 1 Corinthians, he says not everyone does speak in tongues. He says, in fact, there's many spiritual gifts, and God's going to use those in the life of people. And the fact that the Corinthian church was elevating this one gift above them all, he's rebuking them for saying, you shouldn't want that. Here's some other ones that would be way more helpful in your context. It's not about you experiencing something with God. It's about God using and working through you the way in which he has called you. That will give us an experience with God. But if we try and manipulate it and we try and make it occur in a certain time or a certain way, we're going to end up in trouble. This word tongues that we read here is, is somewhat ambiguous but the reason that I am very certain that it's exactly as how we read here is because the words for dialect and language in the Greek in the verses 6 and verses 8 make it very clear that what happens is not that people walk out and that they just have some kind of a spiritually profound experience, but that they begin to speak to other people in the language that they understand. Now, we can have this conversation further when we get beyond uh, this text in Acts and when we get to kind of some other moments that tongues happens. But basically what this would look like is if all of us, all of a sudden, the Spirit descended on all of us and we just walked out into our town, and our town's a great example of this, and we just started speaking to people in the native language that they spoke and declaring who God is to them. Now, just like Banff, and we're going to see this in Next week's text is Peter's going to stand up in front of all of those people and he's going to speak in Aramaic to all of them. They all understand Aramaic to some degree. But they all have a kind of a native language that they speak and and the miracle is to show that look, God is for all of you. You don't have to convert to a certain thing but that God is teaching you who he is and he's declaring his mighty works to you that you would hear so that you can know that you are meant to be part of the family of God as well. And some in this room maybe have had that experience. Maybe you've been somewhere and you've spoken in a language that you didn't know, you knew how to speak and then conveniently forgot how to speak it right after that again. Because the point is God used you to do something miraculous. Again, we talked about this the first week is that the the title of the book being The Acts of the Apostles is a little bit misleading. It's really The Acts of the Risen Lord. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's not what we're doing. It's not that Peter and James and Paul and some of these other main players in the book of Acts have so much power. This power comes from where? And is given to who? all followers of Jesus. But they all are going to work in many different and unique ways. And so I think what we need to do is we need to step back from our particular Christian tradition sometimes, whether it's too far on this end or whether it's too far on this end, and say, what is actually happening here? Now, I told Shayla I wasn't going to go here, but I am going to go here. I wrote it, And then last night I decided not to, but this morning I decided to again. So there's a quote that's going to come up in a minute. But the reason that I say all of this, the reason that I want to go here is because I want to help us understand how to have biblical theology. There's a group of uh, Christian people that see in this text something that I think is very clear there, but then they take it to say something too far, which then changes and twists their theology to move away from what scripture teaches So here's an example. There's a belief among many scholars, and I think it's very evident that it's here, that what we see is a reversal of the Tower of Babel here. Now, if you don't know the Tower of Babel, in in Genesis, what we have is uh, people all united under one common language. And they're working together for one purpose, but they turn their backs on God, and they say, we're going to build a tower to declare our own glory how awesome we are, and they've, they've completely forgotten about God. And they begin this tower building, and, and what we see is that God goes, the hearts of people have, again, turned away from me. And if they're united together in this, then basically who knows what's going to happen. Obviously, he does, but... And so he comes down, and he confuses their language, and and instead of one world language, there's now many languages, and they can't speak to each other, and they can't communicate well, and... And so they abandon this project and they kind of go off all on their own. And so what you can kind of see here is a mirror that now those 120 or so disciples walk out and suddenly they're communicating to people in the languages that they don't know how to speak. You can see there's kind of a reversal happening. That what was confused and how language wasn't working the way that God had originally intended with the Tower of Babel happening was now that it's being reversed and people can communicate there. And so what's happened, now this is, I think that's where the imagery stops. But there's a a Christian tradition that will go on and they will say, and that's what tongues are, is a return to that original one language. Except does it ever say that in the Bible anywhere? You kind of have to do some spiritual gymnastics to get there. But the problem then is, is they go, so now that means that that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So if you don't speak in tongues, then you can't be part of this family because you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Who would do this? And that's where it gets very dangerous. So let me read you a quote. It's a little bit of a long one, but I think it's really helpful and puts this in reference to us exactly as it's listed. So Paul Hill writes this. He said, it would be contrary to the text to speak of the Spirit giving a new common language. The opposite is rather the case. The Spirit gave the Christians many languages, all the languages represented by the nationalities listed in verse 9 to 11. And is this not how the Spirit continues to work? He empowers Christian witness to take the gospel to the many different languages of the world to create a worldwide people of God united by a common confession in the Lordship of Christ feel free to go back online later and pause and take a picture of that quote, because that's solid. He's pointing out that what's happening is not a one-world language by any stretch, but a miraculous way in which we can take the gospel to people that we don't know how to take the gospel to. Where I don't have the ability to communicate with that one person, and God goes, don't worry about it. I can make that happen. But does he always make that happen? Clearly not. Because there's many other gifts that are given to his people to accomplish his purposes. And so it's important that we see that. It's important that we don't try and make the text say what the text does not say. But here's what I want to point out to us now. Is these 120 or so people go out and they, they're speaking to these People in all of these different languages, and again, they're primarily Jewish people, some who live in Jerusalem, probably some who have come for the festival, but primarily it's probably people who dwell there, though scholars kind of differ on that. So thinking of it in both ways is probably the healthiest. But notice what it says. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then here's the response. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Now again, we're going to look at this next week, but Peter's going to go up and he's going to declare the gospel. And it's through the preaching and the declaration of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that people come to faith. Notice it's not through the gift of tongues that people come to faith. Because after the gift of tongues happens, that's when Peter goes and speaks in Aramaic to the whole crowd. And upon hearing the message of Jesus, they respond. But here's the point is this verse 12 and 13 is that Jesus always demands of us some kind of a response. C.S. Lewis was the one who kind of coined it this way, but he would say it's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. That's the categories that Jesus would have to fall into. Either he is Lord, he is who he claimed to be, or he was a liar and he knew he wasn't the Lord, but he was just trying to deceive people or he was a lunatic who actually believed he was the Lord, but he wasn't. And so if we want to break it down into these two categories, it's either people who respond positively to Jesus or people who respond negatively. Now, that's not unique to only here in the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that all throughout Acts, is that when the gospel is declared, when the Holy Spirit is at work, some people will repent and some people will reject. But that's not really that new either. In fact, turn just a few pages back with me to John chapter 9. So I want to show us something. So Jesus um, on the Sabbath has healed someone. He was blind and Jesus made him see and now there's all kinds of response to that. And I'm going to read chapter 9 verses 13 to 16 so that we can see that this response problem has always been there. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, notice how it says some of the Pharisees. You see this all kinds of times throughout Scripture. Nicodemus is an example of this, where some of the Pharisees did acknowledge that Jesus was the Christ. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So even in Jesus' own miracles, people's hearts were hardened and they refused to go, Yes, he is the Lord. Because after all, why would God heal someone on a Sabbath? That makes no sense. It only makes no sense if you've twisted the term and the understanding of what the Sabbath was meant to accomplish. Sabbath was meant for what? It's meant for rest and rejuvenation. Two different times the Sabbath law is given and one of them, it reminds them of Egypt and so that they would not go back to that and they would remind themselves that their, their worth, their value is not in what they accomplish and in what they do, but in the fact that they've been created by God and they need time to reflect on that is there a truth that maybe our culture needs to hear more than that your value is not in what you do but it's in who you've been be, who you who has created you and so here you see the Pharisees and they're arguing they're going man Jesus can't heal but what did Jesus do to heal was it very difficult for him like did he pick him up on his back and hike him up a mountain and break some kind of the sabbath laws he spoke He bent down and he grabbed some dirt and he spit in it and he made mud. Pretty sure all of our children have done that many a time without the miracle. (laughs) The point being is that Jesus was not working on the Sabbath, but their view of the Sabbath had become so narrow. And Jesus would try and continue to correct that and he would later say, is it better to do good on the Sabbath or better to do harm? Should we heal or should we let state sick. Jesus would say things like, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He would try and help his people understand that, look, you've twisted all these laws about what God has called you to do, and you've made them so rigid that you can't even see a miracle when it happens right in front of your very eyes. I think that's the same thing that we see here in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? all these people are speaking in different languages and they go, man, it's just the alcohol talking. Now, admittedly, I haven't had a lot of connection with people that are drunk out of their minds. But what limited experience I have had has told me that that has not made them much more eloquent and able to uh, explain other people's languages. Is there a medical doctor? Lori, are we? Uh, it seems, right? It doesn't lead to order, it leads to chaos, But their hearts are so hard that they're, no, this cannot be from God. It must be of the devil. So here's the thing. The response is what Peter's going to preach to and tell them, no, this is not what you think here. This is the mighty works of God. And not everyone's going to believe. And I think this is where it gets really personal for us too, is God is at work within you. If you were a follower of Jesus, if you have submitted your heart to Christ, to follow him you have been given the holy spirit but that does not mean that every person that you walk up to to try and share the good news and the hope of jesus with them will respond to you cuz you can't make them respond some will reject some will say you're crazy some will say ah you're believing something that's nonsense and they'll try and undermine and demean what you believe but some may respond Some may look at it and go, man, maybe Jesus is who he claimed he was, and and I have to deal with this. I have to figure out who is Jesus. But that's for the Holy Spirit to accomplish, not for you or for me. We're just to be faithful with whatever he's called us to do and however he's equipped us to do it. And so we're going to talk about this later, but will you speak in tongues? Maybe. Maybe but we're going to have to really redefine what tongues actually are and is. Is God going to use you to do a miraculous thing, maybe? Or is God maybe going to call you just to be faithful and to declare Jesus to the nations? Seems that's the more normative way. There are times and moments when the Spirit does incredible miraculous things, but they are not the normative thing for the early church moving forward. It happens occasionally, and I think it happens in our world occasionally too. But usually when we read a text like this, we go, God, that's what I want. Would you you give me that gift so that people can see that in me? And it's really not about God. It's more about us and our experience. Man, my family would really listen to me if all of a sudden I walked home and I could speak 17 different languages at once. Except Jesus would argue that when Lazarus, the parable of Lazarus, when he dies... And there's this kind of view of his, His uh, there was a rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man was in Hades, and, and Lazarus was kind of what's referred to as Abraham's bosom. It's a whole other conversation for another time. But what happens there is that this rich man is in torment, it says, and he cries out to God, and he says, you know, just help me somehow. And he says, send send Lazarus back. Like, revive him from the dead, send him back to my brothers, then they will believe. And what does Jesus say? Or I guess what is Abraham in the story, but it's Jesus. What does he say? He said, he's not going to believe. He has the law. They, they have the law and the prophets. They have the words of God written by his mouth to us that we would know who he is. If they don't believe that, they're not going to believe through a miracle. That's what we see with Jesus that's so what we see with the Holy Spirit a lot, as many people will reject. And so for you and I, the point is not how, what crazy, miraculous thing do I get to do? It's, God, how do you want to use me to accomplish your purposes? How can I be faithful to love those in my community, to share with them the message of Jesus? And should he do something crazy and miraculous in you, great, celebrate that. But if he doesn't, great, celebrate that too. Because he's the one in control. We don't get to put limitations on the Holy Spirit. He's going to work in many ways, some of which are crazy and miraculous, and some of which are very normal and what we would maybe see as mundane. But they're not. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to sit with someone and to tell them about the message of Jesus, and they've responded, nothing crazy has happened. But according to Scripture, there's a party in heaven for that one person. Notice the party is for the person who confessed Jesus as Lord, not for you who did something amazing to get them to confess. So as we move through Acts, that's going to be our point, is what does the scriptures actually teach? We want to submit ourselves to it so that we don't contradict the own, the very book that we say that we believe. So let's step out in faith and let's do what God has called us to do. Whatever that is, let's be faithful.